As we're continuing in a sermon series on the book of Acts, as we're moving forward, last time that we met, when we were studying in Acts chapter 7, Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he introduced us to this madman named Saul. Now, Saul was the first recorded haters and tormentors of people who follow Jesus. He's the it's the first one that we know of. And at this point in time that we're at in Acts chapter 8, the believers, those who are following Jesus, they mainly lived in and around the city of Jerusalem. And after some Jewish leaders had killed Stephen, we saw that Saul now went on this rampage and he's dragging out Christians, people who believe and they're following the apostles, he's dragging them out of their homes, throwing them in jail, he starts this massive persecution of the church. And it's that persecution that directly results in many believers scattering. They're going to different cities, different towns, different provinces. They left Jerusalem out of fear for their lives and out of a fear for Saul, really afraid of this guy. And in every city that these believers scattered to, they started telling people about Jesus. They started preaching while they were there. We're going to pick up the action. We are in Acts chapter 8, verse number 4. We're going to follow one of these men who scattered out of Jerusalem. We're going to follow a man named Philip. I'm in Acts 8, verse number 4. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. I know we ended on that last week, but we're going to start on that this week because this is, this is important. There's a very important detail in this scripture that we want to address so that we can properly understand what's going to come next. I'm going to ask the team to put a map up here on the big screen. And I want you to take a look at this because what you're, what you're going to see is this is modern day Israel. Okay. And this is what it looked like, similar to what it looked like in Jesus's day. And I want you to look at these three boxes here. Okay. This is going to be somewhat important and it's going to, we're going to see why this is somewhat startling what has happened. These are three distinct territories. Think of them kind of like states, like our states, not quite as organized. But what you have in the Northern Territory is an area called Galilee. There are some towns that you recognize from the Bible that are in Galilee. Cana is there. That's where Jesus performed his very first miracle. Capernaum is there. Jesus was raised in Galilee in a town called Nazareth. Then you come down to the southernmost and we have Judea there. Okay, so we have some towns there that are really important. Jerusalem is in Judea. Bethlehem is in Judea. Now you've got Jews who are living in Judea and Jews that are living in Galilee. Okay, now I want you to notice this place in the middle, right between the two of them. That is Samaria. Now on this map, you see that dotted line that's going around from Galilee to Judea here? Okay, well, maybe you can't really see it dotted, but you see that line right there. What this line is showing, this really shows how much hate 
the Jews had for those who lived in Samaria. If you wanted to get from Galilee to Judea, you wouldn't walk straight through Samaria. You wouldn't. You would go all the way around. You would go east of the Jordan River, you would go south, and then you would come back in. It was that big of a deal that you would just stay away from Samaria altogether. So it's fascinating to me that Samaria is the very first place that we see in the Bible that's recorded when the, when the word goes out, when the people are scattered, the first story we hear is about the gospel going to Samaria. Jews don't go to Samaria. They wouldn't typically go there. But that's where we see that the gospel went first. The Samaritans, they are a people that the Jews, Galilee, Judea, would honestly, they look down on these people. They would look at them as half-breeds. Now, I know that that is kind of an anti-cultural term, but it's exactly what they would have looked at them as. They dislike them a lot. And it's important to know that the Samaritans, they have their own temple, they have their own rendition of the Old Testament, but they, they only really studied what's called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible or the Pentateuch. And even that, it's a, definitely different than what the rest of the Jews study. The Jews don't refer to them as Jews. They don't refer to them as Gentiles. They are lower than anyone else. They were, however, expecting a Messiah as well. They weren't expecting Jesus, but they are expecting a Messiah. So there's some similarities in the faith between the Jews and the Samaritans. So I just want you to keep that in mind that there is this, there is this hate between these groups. We can go ahead and pull that map down team. Thank you. So I'm going to go down another road here because this is going to be important in something that we're going to look at here also. There is miracles happening, but more than that, the Samaritans are used to this world. They're used to seeing miracles, people doing things. There's demons and signs and wonders and magic and witchcraft and sorcery all throughout our study today. God gave men, some men, power to, per, to perform signs and wonders. Philip was one of these men. The apostles had, this, had these abilities through the Holy Spirit. Verse number six says that Philip came to town and he was performing signs. He was healing people and he was calling out impure spirits. He was healing people and... The people in the city where he was, they recognized this and they recognized this, this power that Philip has. One thing that the people in Samaria knew though, that they had seen kind of this thing before, but not to the extent of what Philip brought. Philip came to town with a message of the Almighty God, with, with the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with, with the, the message that the Messiah, the Savior of the world has come. The only one who could forgive sins, that's Jesus, the Messiah. That's what Philip is coming and preaching. He's the only link between man and God. That's the message. That was different, though, from what the Samaritans had seen recently in their town. Come back with me into Acts, where in chapter 8, we're going to be in verse number 9. 
Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all of the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was somebody great and all the people thought high, both high and low gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. I want you to write this down. This is point number one in your notes this morning. For those of you joining us for the first time, you'll find on the back of your bulletin, there's some fill in the blanks. Those are going to be up here on the screen. Point number one in your notes is this. Jesus isn't the only one who will amaze you with signs and wonders. Jesus isn't the only one who will amaze you with signs and wonders. I know that sounds odd, stay with me for a little bit. We're introduced to this new character here in this chapter. Simon, Simon who practiced sorcery. This would have been a, this would have been a type of practice that came from the Medo-Persians. We, we see this, it involves science and, and superstitions and astrology. Think stars, tinkering with the occult, these type of things. The, in, in, in Greek, it's myhia. The word is myhia. It, it refers to, it's, it's where we get our English word magic from. Witchcraft, mystique, bewitchment. If you think back to the Christmas story, there were three wise men who came. We refer to them in some editions as magi. Same thing. That's where this word is going to come from. And this is what the people in Samaria here were used to. They were familiar with this. Whatever Simon was doing, he was amazing his audience. So much so that the people, they lay praise on this guy. They say, look what he can do. Look what Simon can do. Say he's a great power of God. I grew up in a very conservative household. And anything that had to do with magic was way off limits in my house. So there was this guy. You remember the guy, right? There's always a guy. So I think it was the neighbor's nephew had stayed with him for the summer. And this kid was not a good influence at all. Long hair, leather jacket, he smoked like a chimney, he was only 14. Like, he's the, he's the guy that your mom does not want you to hang out with at all. I don't remember his name, but I know what he used to captivate us, the rest of us kids in the neighborhood. He used some amazing card tricks. He really did. And, like I said, I don't know his name, but... I remember one of his tricks. What's the first thing that you would say to somebody that they break out some cards and they do a trick, right? What do you, what do you say? You're like, wow, how did, how did you do that? And you know, any good magician's going to say, oh, well, you know, I never reveal my secrets, right? This kid was not a very good magician because he started revealing all of his secrets, teaching everyone how to do these card tricks. And, and so, as, as a kid, he, he taught us. I remember one, and so Kelly's seen it like 200 times. She says, I don't want to know how it works because that's going to take away the amazement from us. But, you know, if you know a dozen card tricks, 
If you know how to make yourself disappear or you can dance on the stage with white lions or maybe you can make the Empire State Building disappear behind a bag of Cheetos, something like that, right? People are going to pay attention to what it is that you're saying, what it is you could do. You're going to draw attention to yourself. That's what it was like with this guy, Simon. Remember, we're not in the time of YouTube. You, you can't really go and look this up to see what's going on. It didn't take a whole lot to outsmart people. It didn't take a whole lot to get somebody's attention. Something looks cool, you're gonna grab everyone's attention with it. And they were sure that Simon's sorcery was of God's hand. It wasn't. It wasn't. The Samaritans actually should have known better than to pay close attention to what Simon was doing in their neighborhoods as, as he walks around. The Samaritans, they did study the first five books of the Bible. That's really the extent of their scriptures. It's the book of Moses. It was a little bit different in their rendition, but they would have seen this scripture out of Deuteronomy. They should have been familiar with this. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse number 9. Now let me set the stage here for a minute. This is a moment when God is leading His people, His chosen people, into the promised land. There are already people who live there in the promised land. God does not want His people to do what they do. He says, I want you to be different. I'm in Deuteronomy 18, verse number 9, reads like this. God says, when you enter the land the Lord is uh, your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices deviation or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritualist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. There's a reason that God is forbidding these practices from his, his people, the occult and, 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 and demons and, and spirits. He's saying to stay away from this stuff. God knows how naive humans are. I mean, let's face it. God's first two humans were deceived by a snake, right? So we can be deceived really easy. Today, God talks to us through his word. We hear him through his written word that has been preserved for us. And, and in the past, he would speak through his prophets. And we read that in the Old Testament. And we get into the New Testament. Of course, he spoke through, through Jesus Christ. And, and the apostles would write what God is saying. And so we can hear the word of God. But don't be fooled and think that you can only hear God's voice and that if you're not hearing God's voice, that God's not saying anything to you. Don't, don't be fooled and think that. Here's the second point in your notes this morning. This is so important. Satan loves to disguise himself as God. Satan loves to disguise himself as God. There are other voices that are begging for your attention. Does Satan have a voice? Sure he does. Absolutely. When was the last time? Maybe you've said this. Maybe you've heard somebody else say this. Oh, the devil made me do it. Yep, yeah, probably is true. 
The devil probably told you or influenced you to do that, right? I wonder when the last time we ever said, hey, God made me do it. We don't really say that as often, right? Yeah, yeah, homeless, I've been feeding you all day long. God made me do it, you know? But why does God want us why does he not want us dabbling in, in, in the occult and, and messing around with rich witchcraft and sorcery and, and spells and these demonic areas? It's because they're harmful to us. It's not an area that we need to be messing around with. Our God and our creator has warned us those areas are dangerous. And he's saying, hey, you know what? Off limits. No trespassing here. I don't want you going into this area. Sure, God gives us rules to live by, but we all make our own decisions. We're not, we're not robots. He says, stay within these guidelines for a reason. These aren't, these aren't rules to hold you back. They are to protect you. But God knows that Satan has a voice and has a very, very loud voice. And his demons love to entice us, right? They love to amaze us. They, they love to overtake us with astonishment. I wonder if Satan and his demons have ever spoken to you louder than God and his angels did. I wonder if there's a time that we can look back and say, I couldn't hear God's voice, but man, I was, I was in a bad area. I was doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. I, I wonder if Satan and his demons have ever spoken louder. Or maybe you heard Satan and his demons louder than you heard God and his angels. Sometimes we hear voices louder than others simply because they're making more noise. Because they're screaming for us. Jesus never said, I am going to yell the loudest for your attention. And I'm going to put on this amazing show so that you can... You can Pay attention to me all the time. Jesus never said that. What he said is, I stand at the door and knock. That's what he said. He's not, he's not there to perform continual signs and wonders for our attention. He says, I did that. It's in the book. I'm speaking to you here. You see that out there? It's not me. It's a very, very, very loud voice. That's not me. He's not going to knock us over with astonishment. But what he is going to do, he is going to heal our hearts through a personal relationship with him. What he is going to do, he is going to be there when everyone else has left. What he is going to do, he is going to keep his promises to you. Yeah, I don't know that Satan ever really promised to keep his promises to you really doesn't. See, the people of Samaria, they witnessed the miracles which, which God performed through Philip and the people of Samaria, they focused, watch this, on the message of Philip. That's what reached them. They had seen the signs of Simon, but you know what? Simon drew all the attention to himself. They recognize the man. There's a difference between recognizing the man, the speaker, and God, the message. See, focusing on the man brought all the attention 
to Simon. Come back with me. We're in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to move to verse number 12. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. Philip comes to town, performs these signs and wonders, heals people in the name of Jesus Christ, preaches the good news about the kingdom of God, and he starts telling everyone that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has come, and look what happens. People become followers of Jesus, and people are baptized. Amen. That's what happens. And it had nothing to do with Philip. Philip's the messenger. It all had to do with the name of Jesus and the good news of the gospel, the kingdom of God. That was the point. With Simon, though, his works were simply a card trick. It's a magic show. There's nothing behind it. But there was something different about Philip. Simon had been the man who had astonished Samaria for years and now Simon himself starts paying attention to what this is that Philip is preaching. And Simon starts following Philip. He's amazed at what Philip's doing. Simon even goes and gets baptized. That looks good, right? The sorcerer is going to get baptized. There is, though, without question, a massive difference between the works of God and a card trick. Huge difference. Simon knew how to do card tricks and amaze people and bring attention to himself. Philip brings us something even more miraculous. He brings us the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. But I want you to recognize Simon was motivated. He's motivated by a very selfish reason. He saw this new guy in town who's coming, who's performing signs and wonders and healing people, teaching about Jesus, and kind of taking away his audience. The magician, he was the big guy. Now there's another big guy. So we have a sorcerer now following Philip and the Samaritans following the teaching of Jesus through Philip, follow me back, we're in verse number 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So when the scattering of the Jews happened out of Jerusalem, when Saul had come in, was tearing the church apart, throwing people in jail. So we've got these messengers who are scattering. It really wouldn't have been top of their mind to send people to Samaria, but that's where Philip goes to. And people start coming to Jesus and word gets back to the apostles who are still in Jerusalem that there's this movement going on in Samaria. Remember, it was the middle section, right? Jews don't go to Samaria. So the apostles decide to send in the big guns. We're going to send in a couple of guys 
to go see what's going on in Samaria. Are these rumors true? Are the Samaritans really following Jesus? Could this be real? So Peter and John, these, this is like the top two, right? These guys are going to travel into Samaria, see what's going on. And they recognize that the Samaritans are believing. They are getting it. But they've only been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is that, that baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is God living in your heart. That's what Simon had noticed in Philip. And when the apostles came to pray over the Samaritans, and the Holy Spirit just comes into their life, comes into their heart. They're filled now with the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John, they, they pray over this crowd laying hands on them. And, and I want you to see, look what the sorcerer does now. Look at this. I'm in verse number 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also the ability so that everyone who I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon wants to buy the blessings that come by following Jesus. He wants to buy that. First, you can't buy salvation. Second, you can't buy what the Holy Spirit does in your heart. Money is not going to buy that. Simon wanted the benefits of faith in Christ without the commitment. He wanted to be a Christian without life change. He wanted to be a child of God without accepting the direction of the Father. He wanted to have all of his cake and eat it too. He wanted to buy, purchase the power of God. See, being a Christian is not a magic show. It's not all fun and games. It's a blessing. It's an amazing blessing to have the assurances of eternal security with Jesus. And it's a blessing to have a family of believers that we can lean back on when we really need it in those tough times. It's a big blessing, but being a Christian isn't about, it's not about just what you get, it's also about what you give. And genuine faith gives everything. Simon's faith, it wasn't real. His belief was not real. People can claim to be Christians and they're not. People can get baptized and not be saved. Some people, even in our culture, find advantages of saying with their mouth that they are Christians, but then they say with their lifestyle that they are not. Maybe it sounds good to tell mom or to tell an employer or somebody, yeah, I go to church. I go to church, it sounds good. See, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going in your garage makes you a car. Simon thought that following Philip around and being baptized made Simon a Christian. It's not that simple. 
Do you know how genuine faith, your genuine faith is known by others? It's through actions. It's not through words. Has your life been changed? Is there a noticeable change? Can you see a change? In the book of James, Jesus' brother writes this in James chapter 2, verse number 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if somebody claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Verse 19, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Has Jesus made an impact large enough on your life to change behavior? That's how you know. That's how other people know. I wonder if you've ever questioned your faith. Maybe you say, am I really saved? Or did I just, did I just pray a prayer one day? Did I just walk up because everyone else was walking up? If I died right now, do I know for sure? Point number three in your notes is this this morning. Genuine faith in Jesus produces noticeable change. Let me ask. How has Jesus changed your life? Is there a part of your life that hasn't changed? Maybe a part that we're, we're holding on to that we want to keep so bad. Maybe it's a secret that we want to keep from, from Jesus. See, Simon wanted to keep living his life and call himself a, a, a Christian. Simple question from Simon to the apostles. He's like, hey guys, can you sell me some of that power of God so that I can do the same thing? Sell me some of that. And Peter turned around and chewed this guy out for even thinking that he could buy God's love and power. Look what he says. This is Peter speaking in verse number 20. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. I wonder if that sounds like us. I wonder if we can look back and say, hey, that's... That's me. I wonder if any of us have been captive, captive to sin, but we want to be part of the family as well. I wonder if we, if we claim our faith in Christ, but for the wrong reasons. I wonder if we have only given some, but not all. There's some people who will live their whole life Claiming to be Christians, but they're not. Let me tell you something. Claiming doesn't prove anything. Saying something doesn't prove anything. Being a better person doesn't prove anything. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 21. 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Here's the fourth point in your notes this morning. The blessings of genuine faith are not for sale. There are no shortcuts. All roads lead through Jesus. There are no shortcuts. You can't buy God's power. You can't buy God's love. You cannot buy genuine faith. You cannot buy your way to heaven. Now, you would think, after getting chewed out by an apostle, that Simon would step back and maybe, maybe repent. Maybe he would think about this wickedness that he's been involved in and maybe look at making a change. Come back to me, see what he does. I'm in verse number 24. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. I want you to recognize this. What Simon asked for prayer for, he didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't ask and pray for repentance. He didn't pray for a changed heart. That, that would have produced a change in behavior in him. If he had this changed heart, that's not what he prayed for. He asked Peter to ask God on his behalf that bad things don't happen to him. That's what he asked for. Simon straight up, he told Peter this. Basically, he says, dude, I'm going to continue living in my sin. And will you just pray that it doesn't hurt me very much? That's what he did. He's like, hey, pastor guy, I'm going to keep doing this. Just pray that I'll be okay doing this. Simon didn't pray for himself. He asked Peter to do it. See, Simon, he really couldn't start praying for safety and security of his body and soul, security from the consequences of his worldly lifestyle without first repenting for his love for his worldly lifestyle. How can I pray for security from something that is wrong, but I love without giving up what is wrong, but I love? Simon didn't change. His faith was fake. His baptism, it was all a show. How do we know that our faith is genuine? I'd say we start by asking ourselves, what has changed? What is it that has changed? If the only thing that has changed is the fact that you give up Sunday mornings to be here, maybe the genuineness of our faith should be questioned. If that's our only change, how much are you and how much are we willing to give up? See, Jesus never said, 
He never said to us, you know what, just give up half. Jesus never said, hey, I'll split this with you. You go to church and I'll just give you all the benefits of, of being a Christian. I'll just load you up with blessings. We'll just do this. I'll take half, you take half. That's not what he's saying. Jesus told his disciples that they would give up everything. He told the rich young ruler to go home and sell everything and then come and follow. What is showing up at church on Sunday? Yeah, it's a really good start. But showing up at church on Sunday, if that's my only change, what that is is really, it's kind of, it's just similar to just showing up to work on Monday. Showing up, yeah, this is where we come and this is where we heal, and this is where we study, and this is where we spend time with our church family and with our brothers and sisters, but our genuine faith produces change. What has changed? What is different now? What have we given up for Jesus? What is it that we need to give up for Jesus? Are we asking, are we praying for true repentance? Are, are, are we down on our knees repenting God? There has been a distance, God, between you and me because I have this in my heart and I love it. I love this, but I need to let this go. I need this out of my life. Lord, I want my faith to be genuine. I want people to notice. I want to notice. God, I want you to notice that there is a change in me. Genuine faith produces noticeable change. In our hearts, yes. But in our lives, others will see this noticeable change in our lives. That's what happens with Jesus. It's different. We are different. We are different people because of Jesus. Our church family is full of people who are different than who we used to be. We're full of people who are broken, people who are still growing, we're people who are still not there yet. We still have something that we can give. Maybe it's something that we can still give up. I'd ask you what that is. I'd ask you to pray about that with me.